The year is 2020, and the Giants will go up against Tom Brady and Jason Pierre-Paul on Monday Night Football in Bucks uniforms. We preview the Giants-Bucks primetime matchup, get into the maskless Giants, and LT explains why Big Blue should be keeping Evan Ingram. We also will chat with a longtime NFL executive, former Giants general manager, the great Ernie Accorsi. All that and more comes at you next, right here on Blue Rush from the New York Post. Welcome back to the Blue Rush Podcast, a New York Giants podcast from the New York Post. Subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon. Give us that five-star rating. Write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate your support. Your host of Blue Rush this season are the Post Giants longtime beat writer Paul Schwartz and two-time Giants Super Bowl champion kicker Lawrence Tynes. Joining the guys in the second half of the show will be former Giants general manager Ernie Accorsi. But first, guys, we're going to mix it up this week. Opening with In the Paper, taking you inside the biggest headlines surrounding the New York football Giants this week. And we'll start it off with the maskless Giants. Masks were off at a restaurant in New York City, seen with Saquon, Daniel Jones, Sterling Shepard. Starting with you, Paul, do you look at this as a big deal? Should these guys be reprimanded in any way? Or is this just boys being boys and enjoying a night out in town? Well, you know, boys being boys um, during coronavirus does not jive, right? You know, I mean, look, it was innocent. Joe Judge actually praised the fact that these guys kind of on a sort of bye week, right? They had a Thursday game. They have the weekend off that they got together. The the, the key guys, Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, Sterling Shepard. There was a bunch of rookies there that they and, – and they didn't just say, screw it. We're going out. We don't care about coronavirus. They went to a private room in a restaurant in the city, and then somebody they knew said, look, who had a private bar, you know, private room in a bar, said, come have some drinks after your dinner, right? So they they, they arranged this to be private. Was it a little bit sketchy in coronavirus? Yes. Not a, I don't think it's a big deal, but it's more optics. The video, DJ Lughead, who I know, Jake, you're very close with DJ Lughead, right? <laughs> My boy, spinning the ones Lughead, and twos. Yes. <laughs> that that, uh, that um, DJ wow. Lughead, who, who knew some of these players, You you this is actually funny. And then I'll let Lawrence go. I'm bogarting this question, but DJ Lughead just does this to me. You know, DJ Lughead was driving for the players that night. Okay, and then he posts a video. So all I would say about this is the one who really gets the shaft here is Mr. Lughead because he will never be driving for the Giants again. And that is true. And, you know, the first thing I saw when I <laughs> when I saw who broke the news or who tweeted it and then his Twitter had been deleted and not a big deal. But I get the the optics of it. Right. As players, people want to know, you know, who's in there, Daniel Jones and Saquon and the stars of the Giants. If we have stars, we're one in six. But they are NFL football players, but you know that city was hit hard, and, and some people may look at this as a bad thing. But I do enjoy like the guys are fellowshipping, like Coach Joe Judge said, and, and taking some downtime to you know get to know each other and hang out. So not a big big deal, but I think a bigger deal for DJ Lughead. <laughs> Guys, the Giants' fourth pick, Andrew Thomas, has struggled so far this season. Should Matt Parrott be starting over Thomas at left tackle, or should they split the time? Times you've been watching a lot of game film. What would you do if you were the Giants? 
I have, and man, I have. I feel like what does uh, Gettleman say? I, I watch film to my eyes bleed. So I've been doing that. I want to be good at this job, and so I don't want to just spout off and talk nonsense like like usual. Yeah, like, like usual. Done, yeah, so like I, I'm usual, turning yeah. I'm turning over a new page here. But mm-hmm. I, I will say this: if that coaching staff does not recognize that Matt Pert right now is a better left tackle than Andrew Thomas, mm-hmm. I quit. I quit. Mm-hmm. Matt Pert is a better left tackle in the snaps we've seen him play than Andrew Thomas is. And I don't care. No one will ever change my mind on that because if you watch that Philadelphia film, it looks like this guy had never played football before. I mean, it was that bad. It And I watched it twice. And I, sure, I'm not, but it's pretty easy to see, does he win or does he lose? And he lost on more than half of those plays. So, yeah. I, 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 well, hold on. You, we have to run that back. You said... If Pert is not a better left tackle than Andrew Thomas, you will quit. I will quit the show. You you, you will quit. Okay, Sarah, are you ready to take over as co-host? <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. Okay, put me okay. in. Um, he just right, he's look, better. Just that's but, but, but first first of all, we live in reality here. The fourth pick in the draft is not getting benched for Matt Pert. Period. Second of all, Matt Pert was very limited snaps. You saw Lawrence. It was limited. He has all sorts of technique issues. He's not ready. Now, grounded in reality, Mark Colombo, the offensive line coach, was asked about this, okay? Are you going to bench Andrew Thomas? And he said, if this is kind of funny, he said, we'll cross that path when we get to it, which almost sounds like, oh, it's coming, but not yet. But I don't think that's what he meant. He said, I don't think we're there yet. And he made a very good point, Lawrence. He said, when I watch, if he gets beat on one play, he executes it better the next play. He understands what he did wrong and he doesn't dwell on it. And if he dwells on it, then we got to get him out because then he's not learning. He said, that's not the case with him. They're sticking with him. You know what? This was his worst game. I think this is a little going to be a little bit of a come to Jesus moment for him. I think he will play better. He is the fourth pick in the draft. They're sticking with him. No, listen, and that's fair, but we're not there yet. So don't don't think that it hasn't been discussed. And they're worried about his psyche to some extent. You are not going to hurt this football team by putting Matt Pert at left tackle. In my opinion, the team. You may hurt Andrew Thomas, and maybe you put him at right because Fleming didn't play well either. So maybe you move him to right and put Pert at left. I don't think – I just think the offense watching – and I went back two or three games. I think the offense works better with Matt Pert. Is It is limited snaps, but, man, he just looks the part. He looks better. For me, it's more of a gut feeling, right? Just like our guest, Ernie, of course, he says, gut feeling. He just looks better at the position. And I can confirm Tynes is very passionate about this because I was at the gym getting swole with DJ Lughead on the ones and twos, and he was calling <laughs> me breaking down game tape. So uh, I can confirm. I was. Yeah, you you were you were pretty fired up, and I, I'm here I'm here doing thirty pound dumbbell curls here, and uh, Tynes he scream about Matt Parrot, Matt Parrot, Matt Parrot. Speaking of uh, the gym, giant safety Xavier McKinney is rehabbing, but he's not expected back likely until December. That has made the role of Jabril Peppers that much more important, guys. Jabril gave up that game-winning touchdown against Boston. Scott, we'll start with you, Paul. What have you seen from Peppers, and how essential is it that this guy starts to make big plays for this Giants defense? Well, the last we all saw of Jabril Peppers was him running with Boston Scott, who's about five foot nothing, right? And and Boston Scott catching an 18-yard touchdown pass. Very interesting. And Lawrence, you'll know this. 
right? If, if a, a tiny bit of your technique is wrong, right? It could be the difference between hitting a field goal and missing the field goal, right? That's right. Tiny, tight, one step, one move, one angle, everything, right? Yep. This is the way it was broken down with Jabril Peppers. Jerome Henderson, the defensive backs coach said, I liked his coverage. He was right there. He knew the play. He said he went up with his right hand, okay? And that was the problem. If you look at the pictures, the pictures are all over the place. He's defending Boston Scott. His right hand is up. He said, our technique is to go up with the left hand in that situation. That way you're in his body, you're in his face, you're into his hands and you get the fight all the way to the ground with the left hand because the right hand is almost like a one-shot deal. Either you get the ball or not. And I asked Jerome Henderson, look, that's a really minute little thing. Do you expect, you know, uh, I mean, everyone to do that, but I'm sure you expect a guy like Jabril Peppers, who's a veteran. He said, we expect all our guys to do that. We expect that play to be made 10 out of 10 times. So if they can't count on Jabril Peppers, who's supposed to be one of the best players on this defense, to do a technique exactly right, then they're in trouble. Yeah, I mean, this is a team that practices with tennis balls in their hands, so they're all about techniques for not holding and, and doing things the right way. I like Jabril Peppers. Um, I like what he brings to the table. I love his energy. I think he's a good player. I don't know that he's great in coverage. Every player has strengths and weaknesses. That's probably one of his weaknesses. But I do like him in the uniform, and I do like him on our defense. I think he has value. But covering backs out of the backfield probably needs to get his left hand up next time. Yeah, I would say I agree with you. They need what Jabril Peppers brings. The old antro role, as you know, your former teammate, dog. There's not a lot of dogs on that defense. Yes. There's some good players. He is a dog, okay? As a po- Blake Martinez is an excellent player. I wouldn't necessarily call him a dog, and that's not Ooh. negative. You need Ooh. no, no. I, 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 I would. There's a distinction. I, I don't know about mm. that. Not Jabril Peppers got a little bit of orneriness. That's a little okay. asshole quality, and I think that's important. They need more of those. Yeah, I, I think Blake's got that. Big Blue is going up against a few old friends on Monday. Tom Brady, of course, who they beat twice in a Patriots uniform in the Super Bowl. And a former member of their pass rush that went up against Brady in Super Bowl 46, whose jersey I have in the back of my closet, Jason Pierre-Paul. Well, let's talk about our good friend Tom Brady here. A lot of people thought he was done. I watched him on Sunday, and boy, does he look good. He looks better than he has quite frankly, in the last three years in New England. And then JPP, a lot of people will say, ah, that's coming on. There's no teammates or coaches that traded him. But you never forget to this day, I never forget the team that got rid of me, the Kansas City Chiefs. And I, JPP has been still playing at a high level. Last year, he played at a high level after an injury. You better believe that JPP is going to come in there and make some noise. So this is a dangerous football team and in my opinion right now they're the the best team in the nfc paul would you agree with that the best in the nfc um yeah i might agree with that yes uh i think they're better than the packers they're more complete than the packers look i don't know how many people really thought brady was done i mean he had a bad first game in tampa and everyone's like oh brady's done belichick is you know he's gonna win that uh longevity deal there you know what Brady had no playmakers for several years in New England they just kept on figuring you know Belichick and Josh McDaniels were like Tom will figure it out Tom will figure it out Tom will figure it out that a bunch of little five foot ten 
receivers running around. They had, you know, not great running backs. He's got players now. He's got a, you know, bunch of players around him. So yeah, he, he he's going to, I mean, he's going to take apart the Giants. <laughs> really, well, I, Antonio I, Brown is not going to be available. So that's helpful. And Godwin is out with a broken finger. So yeah. And getting back to JPP, um, you know, he was a remarkable player. His second year in the league was one of the great seasons I've ever seen. Yep. I mean, it was just, he had Tuck, he had OC, you know, they really nurtured him, but JPP half the time did not really know what he was doing. And that's not a knock on JPP. He was a young guy, developing guy. All those guys, Kiwanuka, Tuck, OC would always say, we're really good, but that guy's a freak. Yeah. And once he, I mean, I mean, I mean th- that year he had that Super Bowl year was freakish. Lawrence, remember that game in Dallas? Oh, the field goal block. I mean, he he and just he, literally. I, I was sitting in that press back. box. Yeah. He put us on. I back. mean, I was sitting in that press box. You never, you rarely see a defensive player. And if the if the ball went to the left, JPP went to the left and got the ball. If the ball went to the right, JPP went to the right and got the ball. If they ran it up the middle, JPP stopped it up the middle. And then they said, "Oh, we got to get a game winning field goal." No, JPP is going to block that. And he was a demon. He he was a, he's a good guy. Great guy. I'm so I'm so happy that his career. Yep. You know, it was it was really bad. You know that whole yeah. when he blew, blew off the hand and yep. the fireworks and people got really stupid about yeah. that. It was it was an accident. It, and was. it was it wasn't it was an accident. Yeah. And and he's a good guy. I'm happy he's doing well. And um, yes, uh, whether it's Matt Pert or it's Andrew Thomas, JPP is going to do some damage. No, he is. No, he's he's a great player, great teammate, and I, I cheer for him when I watch him play. I just get excited because you know how much joy he played with. He just has fun and he's respectful of the guys and he helps guys up. You even watch him. He'll help guys up from the other team. He's just a great kid, great player. Guys, it's time to make predictions. Da 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 da. Prime time. Monday night football. Giants. Bucks. The Bucks are ten and a half point favorites. They'll be without wide receiver Chris Godwin. Uh, what do you guys think? Make your picks. We'll start with you, Tynesy. I'll go Bucks twenty-seven ten. Not going to be good, Paul. Well, that's not bad, <laughs> considering. Uh, look, but the the, the primetime audience has to see the Giants on a Thursday night, then on a Monday night, right? It's like no muss. Um, thir- <laughs> 34-13. Uh, yeah, I got to see Daniel Jones stop putting up some points here. I don't see it. Uh, I think that loss to the Eagles took a lot out of him. And I will go 31-17 bucks. So I'll, I'll take the over and the bucks covering. Sarah, what do you got? Look, I never bet against the Giants, but I have to in this one. So I'm going... <laughs> 30 21 bucks. Ooh, close. Sort of for us. Will you be sort will of. you be wearing your JPP jersey for the game though, Sam? No, no, no. I won't I won't go that far. No. <laughs> Can't do that, Paul. Rubbish. All right, guys. It's it's a special Thursday edition this time of Tynes Take, where Lawrence Tynes sounds off on a Giants topic that has him thinking. This one is on the controversial topic of Evan Ingram. Take it away, Tynesy. Evan Ingram is fill in the blank. Evan Ingram's our first-round pick in 2017. Future All-Pro player. Then came the injuries. Poor production. Coaching changes. What happened to our superstar tight end, we asked. Giants fans' anger reached unhealthy levels last week after Evan Ingram dropped a ball that would have sealed the game against the Eagles. Sucky feeling is how it's been described. Sucky feeling? Really? Cut him! Trade him! Get rid of him! How could he drop that ball? Since coming into the league, Evan Ingram leads all tight ends in drops. Yet, Giants brass fielded calls all week. Nope, we're not moving him. Wait, what? Why wouldn't the Giants trade him and get a draft pick? Listen, the Giants are not going to get rid of Evan Ingram because he is a talented football player. On a team, 
quite frankly, with not enough talented football players. NFL teams do not give up on talented 26-year-old football players. Hell, they don't give up on talented 32-year-old wide receivers with questionable character. See Antonio Brown this week. NFL teams are in the winning business. Public perception be damned. They don't care what we think or what you think. So to answer my earlier question of Evan Ingram is... Evan Ingram is a young, talented football player with flaws, just like the rest of his teammates in this roster, in this organization, has flaws. You don't give up on talent. Joining us now is the former general manager of the Giants from 1998 through the 2006 season before retiring in 2007. He put together many of the key pieces to the Giants team that would go on to win the Super Bowl in early 2008, he traded for Eli Manning, hired Tom Coughlin, drafted O.C. Tuck, Kiwanuka, Snead, Jacobs, and made key signings in Plaques, Pierce, McKenzie, and others. He's been in NFL front offices for more than four decades. It's the great Ernie Accorsi joining Blue Rush. Ernie, welcome to Blue Rush. Jake Brown, Lawrence Tynes, Paul Schwartz, welcome. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure being with you. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. And, you know, Times is just telling us you guys have, have never spoken before. So this is your first uh, time speaking. We had you on Blue Rush first season last year to talk about the late George Young and the terrific tribute you did to him. Um, obviously, you've known Paul for so many years now. Uh, how much pride do you have in kind of putting so many of those pieces together to one of the most memorable teams in franchise history? Well, it, I mean, obviously, it's such a feeling of fulfillment to see that happen. I, I remember, you know, that, that my last season, 2006, I, and I know a lot of people say this about their teams when they have a lot of adversity, but I, I never remember, I mean, I was in the league for 35 years at that point. I never remember a team that, that had so many key injuries and so many people that couldn't play uh, that season. And, and when I said goodbye to the team the day after the playoff game, in Philadelphia, I said, you know, there's a championship in this room. Now, I'm not. Sh- I don't think I was thinking about the next year already, but, but I did say that. I said that they had come back, and plus, you know, they were competitive 500 team. They got in the playoffs and played the playoff game very tough in Philadelphia. So I was really proud of that team, and and uh, I really did feel that there was the makings of something there. But you know, you never know it's going to come so so quickly. But it, it, the next year was was a miracle. You know, the way it started. I mean, it was a miracle miracle season. Hey, Ernie, it's Paul. Good to hear you. Uh, thanks for coming on. You know, you know, as a general manager, there's a lot of hard decisions you have to make. You have to find players. You have to find coaches. But I, I would imagine you would agree that finding a quarterback is the hardest thing for any executive to do. What is the key to finding a quarterback? And when you look at Daniel Jones, who was the Giants quarterback now, you didn't draft him, obviously, but do you see those ingredients in him from afar? Finding a quarterback, you know, you, it, it's really. I mean, you have to you have to know a quarterback, but you you also have to be fortunate because you know we had such a poor season in 2003. But had we not had that bad season, we would have never gotten Eli or ever had a chance to get Roethlisberger. I mean, if, if I was 14th or 15th, look look what I gave up just to go from four to one. I would have never been able to get up that high to get one of those quarterbacks. So you have to be in the right. It, it was amazing because that bad season gave us the chance. Uh, if you're eight and eight, that never happens. So you have to be in the position to do it, but you have to be so careful because if you if you don't get them, you look at two franchises like the Lions and the Bears. Now, in all fairness and honesty, the Bears haven't had a franchise quarterback since Sid Luckman. The Lions haven't had a franchise quarterback since Bobby Lane. I mean, 
they, you know, they, they've had good, the Bears had championship teams, but, and McMahon was a good quarterback, but I wouldn't put him in that, that league. And you, so you can start chasing that franchise quarterback, which means over evaluating somebody, reaching for them, trying to manufacture them. So it, it, it's a, he has to have the measurables. I mean, you know, he's got to have decent size, obviously a quality arm. He's got to be smart. He's got to be able to move around a little bit, uh, have a great feel for the pocket, great vision is a clutch player, all those things. And then when you finally get down to the tiebreaker, you have to say, what, what do your instincts tell you? And I felt, frankly, I felt very good about both of those guys. I felt, I, I never thought I was going to get Eli because I didn't think the trade was going to be made. And I was perfectly comfortable with Roethlisberger. And, and uh, you know, I, I was pretty certain we were going to get him at four. But you have to instinctively make that feel. And I, I was just lucky that, my first year in the league, I go to Baltimore, and Johnny Unitas is the quarterback. So if you're going to see what a quarterback looks like, a great quarterback looks like, he's showing you right there. And and that, that helped me immensely. That's the quarterbacks in the past. You watch Daniel Jones now as a fan, a very educated fan, a very uh, you know interested fan. What do you see from him? I like him, Paul. And I did not, you know, I saw him play one game in college, and it was the Clemson game, and he got killed. So I really, you know, I don't watch Duke. I mean, I, on Saturdays, I watch a lot of games, and, and I just usually don't watch them. I mean, I'm going to watch, you know, Alabama or Auburn or Ohio State or Michigan. And so, I mean, he didn't have a chance in that game with that defensive line that, that Clemson had. So I, I never really saw him a, until he came here. And I saw him in a preseason on television. And I, I've only seen him on television. Uh, I've never seen him in person. So, you know, I, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on him because it, when I evaluate a quarterback, I mean, I've got to, in a sense, figuratively put my hands on him. I mean, even when I went to see Eli his junior year, because we thought we, we thought we heard rumors he might come out because it was not a very good team in Mississippi. Uh, I went to the field. I wanted to see him close up. I wanted to see what his ball looked like. I wanted to watch his actions. So I, I, I'm only, a, you know, looking at Daniel Daniel from my couch. But I like what I see. I mean, he's made a lot of throws in the, in the two years that I've seen him play where he was under tremendous rush and still, you know, stood in there and still delivered the ball on the money. I mean, he, you know, he hasn't had the benefit of great receivers. Uh, he's had a lot, you know, he's, Shepard's been hurt. He hasn't had, you know, he's had decent protection at times, but I, I think he's got the makings. I mean, from what I can see, you never know. He's got to go do it. I mean, he's got to do it. You know, I always thought when you, when you look at a quarterback, you have to look at him on third down. You have to look at him in the red zone. You have to look at him when the game is on the line. And, you know, that's going to take time. I don't care who you are. Burt Jones uh, struggled. Elway struggled. Heck, Elway's rookie year, he lined up against Pittsburgh put his hands under the right guard. I mean, the right guard said, look, I don't have the ball, John. It's the guy next to me, okay? So that's how rattled these guys can get their rookie year. And sometimes when they go in right away, it's almost like when you play golf and you haven't played in three or four years, the first round's pretty good. But then as time goes on, maybe you try to think too much or whatever, and you start to decline a little bit. That happens. So he's got, you know, he's got time. He's still young, uh, but but I like what I see. Hey, Ernie, this is Lawrence. Hey, thanks, thanks again for coming on. What do you think is is the most critical part of the evaluation process? Obviously, I spent a lot of time with Eli. Our locker was right next to each other, so I got to know him and and play with him. What separated him from the Roethlisberger's and some of the other guys in the draft to where you said Eli is our guy? Well, we love Roth- Roethlisberger, and, and you know, we really evaluated him intensely because that's who we thought we were going to have we were going to get it, it was it was just a whisker difference between the two and and i you know they both 
charts pro days. I mean, I went to Roethlisberger, Roethlisberger's, and I, and I went to Eli's, and I remember going to Eli's, uh, and, and here's just a, a peek at the personality that I saw. Tom Gond- Condon represented him, represented him. His father was there, and, he, and Peyton was there. And uh, J.D. L- Losman showed up, because you can, as you know, Lawrence, you can, have, you can work a player out at, at his, on his campus or in his, the town of his campus or his hometown. So he he hadn't actually planned to be there. Nobody knew he was going to be there. It was at the New Orleans Saints facility, but he showed up. And and uh, when when he came, Condon came up to me and said, you know, we didn't expect Losman here, and Peyton's very upset. And I said, you know, that's fine. How's Eli? He said Eli didn't care. I mean, and so that that kind of let me in on a little bit of his personality. Um, probably the difference between the two was level of competition. I, you know, one guy played the Southeastern Conference, one guy played the Mid-American. Not to slight the Mid-American, but the Southeastern Conference is probably the best conference in the country. Um, but they, we, we loved them both. And, you know, I, that's why I didn't feel that much pressure during that situation because I, I, I wanted Eli, but we had a tremendous fallback position. And, you know, I, I remember leaving that workout in New Orleans kind of depressed because I thought, because he was so good and everything about him I liked. And, 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 I, and I left there and that was with Tom Coughlin. And I said, you know, we're not going to get this guy. I mean, we're just not going to get him. And and I didn't think we were because there was no indication at all from the Chargers that they were going to trade him to us. Did you name your dog that we heard in the background, Eli, or any name, uh, <laughs> LT, any of those? Kind Iron- of- ironically, his name's Mickey. He's after Mickey Mantle. I went back uh, farther uh, to name him. There you go. Do, do you lose sleep at night that you didn't trade for a kicker out of Troy that rhymes with pines? No, that's that's exactly <laughs> right. But I'm great. I'm very grateful to that kicker. You put a ring on my finger. Thank you. Hey, Ernie, I've got a follow up on that. In 2001, you drafted a kicker out of Vanderbilt, and old Tynesy was sitting down there in Troy, the same draft class. Where the hell was I on the list? <laughs> well, you know, we also let Brady go by for six rounds, so don't yeah, feel too true. bad, Lawrence. That's true. <laughs> I feel better now. Thanks. You know, I know you so well. I remember um, all those years we'd be at uh, training camp in Albany. And um, I always remember you come out on the field and you'd see the players. And I think you'd instantly think to yourself, okay, start practice end practice, get everybody in healthy, right? That was, that was basically your thought process. Let's get everybody back in healthy. I remember watching those practices with you, Ernie, and we'd be kind of talking and schmoozing for 10, 15 minutes. And a lot of the other riders would be looking and saying, oh, man, Paul must be getting a lot of good stuff from Ernie. And we'd be talking about the Met game from the night before. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, your, your, your love is your first love is baseball, isn't it? it you know, it, it was. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, you know, I was 10 years old in 1951. So my first game in 50. So. The 50s, you know, baseball was dominant, and college football was second. But I, I started to see the Eagles. Well, the one thing about football, the Eagles trained in my hometown from the time I was 10 till the time I was 27. Now, I didn't like them, but I mean, I, I went to, you know, if I caddied in the morning, I went to the afternoon practice. If I caddied in the afternoon, I went to the morning practice, but I went every day. So I grew up with a football team in my in my hometown, NFL team, and they played two or three preseason games there a year. So I loved pro football. But baseball, I, I played more baseball. I went further in baseball. I went all the way to the American Legion until the Peter Principle caught up with me. But uh, it was really my favorite sport, yes. Uh, and that's really where I wanted to work. I wanted to be a baseball general manager. But when I graduated from college in 1963, I didn't know how to go about that. You know, I, I mean, a lot of the people that were executives in sports were sports writers. I mean, Pete Rosell was, uh, Walter Kennedy was, Ford Frick was. So all the commissioners were Frank Cashin, Harry Dalton, Gabe Paul. They had all either been PR guys or sports writers. So that's how I got into sports writing. I thought that was an avenue to, to get into sports. But 
It was, but, you know, I've spent, I mean, if I count the consulting years, 45 years in the National Football League, two years in college. So football's been my life. And, and, and Ernie, you, you talk about your yeah, football was your life, but as a sports writer, you know, I have an affinity to you because you were a sports writer. Can you really quickly, you broke the Wilt Chamberlain trade story. With, were you with the Philadelphia Inquirer then or the Daily News? You broke that story. Tell our listeners that's an incredible story. It, it is. It's an amazing story how it happened. Now, when, when you were in those days at the Philadelphia Inquirer, I was a 76ers beat writer. But if, if you didn't have a game or you weren't traveling, you had to work the desk. So being single, what they would do, they'd put the single guys on the late shift to put out the you know the, the street edition, the one that, not the 5.30 Bulldog, but the one thirty in the morning, not the one that went home, but the, the one that was on the street when people went to work and they bought them at the newsstand. So I was always working late. And that night I was working and I got a phone. Somebody said, Ernie, there's a call for you. So I took it. Very articulate guy, very smooth, polished, said to me, look, he said, I read your stuff. I, I, I like your stuff. I'm a 76er fan. I went to dinner at the Wayne Inn. I still remember it in Wayne, Pennsylvania, which is right near Villanova. He said, and I, and Irv Kozlov, the owner, and Bob Patron, the PR director, had, had dinner, and they were, I overheard everything they said. They're trading Wilt. They're going to announce it in about two or three days. And here's what they're going to get. I mean, they, they told me, Ilhoff, Shaler Halliman, Archie Clark. I mean, he even had the players. So, he's, and, and I said, boy, you know, he said, I'm, I'm telling you, you don't know me. I'll give you my name. You can call back, and I'm calling from home now. He said, and you'll get me. I'm not some, you know, guy just did a pay phone. And so I, I hung up. I talked to, I told the desk. This was early. This wasn't late yet. And Frank Dolson was there, who was our great columnist at the time, the late Frank Dolson, and a, a real veteran. And I said, "What do you think?" He said, well, "All right, here's what you got to do. You got to call the general manager, and you got to call the PR guy. You got to read the reaction." And he said, "And I'm going to make two calls too." So I, I called. Jack Ramsey, who I had been his sports information director, and he was the general manager. He hadn't taken over as coach yet, and I, he didn't answer me. He uh, and he sure didn't give me any stories. He was a tough guy, and he, he got mad at me, as a matter of fact. Now I really thought I was on to something, so then I called the PR guy, and he made the mistake of saying, how'd you get that? And then he denied it. So I went back to Dolson. Dolson got a similar reaction from somebody that he knew in the organization, and we decided to go with it. So we went to the sports editor who was there, and he took us to the managing editor. I'll never forget this. I don't remember his name. And I, I told him everything I knew, and he said, we're going to copyright this. And, and you'll remember this, Paul, before all these social media and all these cable companies, if you copyrighted it, they had to attribute that story to you everywhere in the country, the wire services and everybody. We're going to copyright it. We're going page one with this. And if you're wrong, you're going to be covering swimming at the Philadelphia Cricket Club with 12-year-olds, okay? I'm telling you right now. <laughs> so, so I went with it and held my breath. Well, we didn't go to it till the last edition because we don't want anybody to pick it up and rewrite it. And we waited to the last edition, and it was the first major story I, I ever broke. And, and uh, yeah, it was really a thrill. I mean, I, everybody was mad at me at the 76ers, but I didn't care, you know. And But it all came from a, a fan of, of, who called me and told me he overheard the owner at a, at a restaurant. And, you know, he his sincerity sold me, and I went with it. So you oversaw, what, nine, ten drafts as the general manager of the Giants? Is Is there a particular class to you? That, that sticks out in terms of like, you know, everyone's always the, the, the success of a draft class is always pegged to the GM. I look at your 2000 class and I see seven guys, five of the seven guys played over a hundred games in the NFL. That's pretty good. It's, it's, it's interesting too, because we went to the Super Bowl in 2000. When I came out of that, you know, I, my, probably my 
I was close to Jerry Reese, but I was extra close to Gettleman. And I said, and I, I said, look, I, I'm not going to, I want to talk to you in about a week. I, I, right now, you know, I'm not going to overreact to this game. It was a debacle. Okay. So I, I went to him. I said, we're not good enough. To, this team's not going to repeat. I said, we're not good enough. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't, I mean, I like Kerry. Kerry took us to the Super Bowl. We got to get better than this. And we sort of rebuilt the team from scratch uh, after that. And rebuilt the offensive line, got some key free agents, and you touched on them, Plexico and Antonio Pierce and McKenzie. But I will tell you this, Lawrence, my favorite draft is the, is the draft after Eli, because I only had four picks, and I took so much grief. Uh, I remember when, when the press box went up and, and you, were, you had to take the same elevator down as people that were in the suites. He had a real bad game his rookie year, and I was in the back of the elevator. The people didn't see me. Not that they would have not said this anyway, but there were fans. These were people, sweet holders, and they were ripping me in the elevator. I'm in the back, and they're saying, and we don't even have any draft choices next year. And now we got this guy, and he can't play. I threw a couple of interceptions. But out of that draft, we got Brandon Jacobs, Corey Webster, and Tuck. And I'm proud of that draft because we only had four picks, and we hit three of them. But to me, they were all indispensable. And, and you know, Corey makes the interception. It gives you the chance to be the to win the game for us in the championship game. Yeah, I owe Brandon Corey a lot of, of money. Yeah, you should. But you kicked it though. Remember that, Lawrence. And and Brandon, I loved, and, and of course Tuck's Tuck. And I, I really, and to be honest, any general manager is going to tell you this. Our fourth pick, whose name I can't remember, I thought he should have made the team too. But Eric but we, Moore. You know, I, I, yeah, I was really proud of that that draft. It is even though we only got three players because of, of all the criticism we took because I gave away so many choices. Ernie, when you co-host like I do with a, a podcast with Lawrence Tynes, you can imagine a lot of people come on and they talk about that kick in Green Bay. Um, you know, they talk about the kick in Green Bay. And then Lawrence says, well, what else do you like about that kick in Green Bay? You know, so, um, um, you know, that, that happened. You know, where were you? I mean, look, you said that kick put a ring on your finger put one ring on Lawrence's finger too, gave me some frostbite in my fingers from covering that game, but no rings. Uh, where were where were you seeing that kick and what range of emotions did you have, you know, knowing that your team that you put together just won a Super Bowl? Where were you for that game? Well, Paul, I was in an unusual position now, and I always thought that I was really a, a whack guy, okay, whack job. But, but then I found out and I read about Jerry West and I read about my friend Pat Williams and and other general managers who couldn't watch games either. I was in Hershey, and I was so nervous that I decided I can't watch this game. And I, I wanted to come back to New York. I had to come back to New York on that Sunday night. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get in my car, and I, I'm going to put a tape on, and I'm not going to listen to this game. Uh, and, and it's going to take three and a half hours to get there. So by the time I get to New York, it'll be over. And I just want to score. That's all I want. And John Mara had invited me to the game. I said, no, I can't go. I just, I can't go. I'm a nervous wreck. I, I, so I get in the car. I'm listening to music. I don't know anything. Now, I also don't know it's an overtime. So I pull up on 69th Street. I live on 69th Street in Manhattan. I pull up about 500 yards from the parking garage, and I pull over and figure the game's over, and, and now I'm going to just tune in and hear the final score. It's an overtime. So here I am in my car in the darkness, a cold night, parked there, When and all I hear is the interception and then the field goal. That's all I hear. So I never saw it. Uh, I couldn't bear to see it. And then I probably would have done the same thing for the Super Bowl, but John Maris said, I'm not taking no for an answer. You're going to the Super Bowl. So I went to the Super Bowl. But that's what I did the night of the championship game. 
It's sick. It's sick. I know. But then I found other other people did it too. Ernie, you were um, you were part of uh, bringing in Dave Gettleman in here. What's your thoughts on the job Gettleman has done in his few seasons as Giants GM? Well, you know, at first first of all, uh, when when I left, when I retired, and I didn't have the decision who was going to succeed me, John Mara and and Steve Tish made that decision. But I recommended Jerry. I li- I liked both of them, but I recommended Jerry. And uh, and I went in and I told Dave. And I think Dave was a little little hurt about it. I mean, and he kind of expressed a little bit about it. And I had no idea that I would ever do any consulting. I mean, I wasn't that wasn't in my plans. But I said to him, "Look, Dave, I had to make a call because if I split my vote, somebody else from the outside might have got." Not that I had that much influence. I'm not saying that, but that's how I felt. And I said, "But if I can make it up to you, I will make it up to you." And you know, I by chance. I get to do the consulting job in Carolina, and I recommended him there, and I was really proud that you know he took that team to the Super Bowl in what his second or third year, and he did a great job there. So when the Giants asked me to help on the on the general manager selection the last time, you know we interviewed a bunch of people, and we were sincere about our interviews, uh, and you know we ha- we wanted to make sure Dave still wanted it, you know that he still wanted to, to, to fight the wars. Uh, he was getting up there, and uh, I mean, I was his age when I retired, you know, when he took that job. So I recommended him again. I think Dave's a tremendous evaluator of talent. And I think, I don't know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not trying to cop a plea here, but I don't know the team well enough. I mean, for example, even on television, I'm in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I, I only saw the, the national television games. I've only seen two games because they, they have the Eagles, the Ravens, and the Steelers on, on here. So I never really get to see them play games. And if you don't see them, you don't, you don't get a feel. You can't read stats, look at highlights. Red zone shows you a limited amount of plays. And you know, when they got behind a few times, they don't show the Giants at all on red zone. They show the other teams that are winning. And uh, I, so I don't really know the talent of the players. I don't know them at all. In fact, I called Pat Hanlon. I said, would you send me a flip card, please? Because when they're, when they're on, I, I don't know any of these guys. So I can't really evaluate the players. But I, have, I will tell you this, I have confidence in them. And, you know, I've always said this, too, about – being a general manager, there are a lot of people who can evaluate talent. I mean, there are scouts, there are a lot of people. You have to know how to build a team. And it's not just evaluating talent, but you can't. And I learned the hard way. We had the two best corners in the league in Cleveland, no pass rushers. That's why Elway went down the field on us late in the game twice. If we had a pass rusher, we would have put him on the ground at least once. And that's all we had to do to stop those drives. And I said, that'll never happen to me again. And when you, when I, when I build a team now, I mean, Look, the quarterback, you got to take the quarterback when you get a chance to take the quarterback. That's number one, without forcing it. And you got to get a line to protect him and a pass rush. And then a big receiver, and then you, you go from there. You have to build from there. But you, And I think Dave knows that. I think Dave understands that, that exact concept. I want to ask you a question about O.C. Yamanura. He was a teammate of mine at Troy, obviously, and a teammate of mine in New York. But what's interesting about O.C. is he didn't go to the Combine. What was the evolution of the Giants finding him? How did you guys end up taking him? He has to be the highest drafted player probably that's never went to the combine that you've ever taken. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, he had a lot of sacks his senior year. I forget how many, but a lot. And when we studied him, he had the most – he played the best against the best competition. He played a couple of top teams, Southeastern Conference teams, and that's where he had his best games, where he was being double and triple teams. And that's really what caught our eye on OC. You know, there's something about a pass rusher. You have to be careful with 
stats with a pass rusher because sometimes you don't, you just don't know. You have to have, you learn how to do th- different things. You d- learn how to do certain techniques. But it's kind of like a quarterback. You either are a natural pass rusher or you're not a natural pass rusher. And when I went, when I picked a guy that high, which you know people could say was a reach, my attitude, Lawrence, was always, yeah, it may be a reach, but if I wait another round just because, well. He shouldn't be picked in the second round. I'm going to lose him. So if I lose him and I have to play against him, what good did it do me to say, oh, well, at least I didn't reach for him in the second round? You want him, pick him. And that's that's how we ended up picking him. And I always remember this. I was in the stands fairly low for, for the first Super Bowl with the Patriots. And on the first play of the game, he came flying around the corner and nailed Brady. And it's it's and it's interesting. I believe that he, he didn't get a sack in that game. Talk at two, I think. But to me, he was... He was on Brady all night. I don't know how many times he hit him. But to me, he was the super pass rusher in that game. And it, 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 as I've, I've told many people, and you know uh, from talking to O.C., he was the sticking point in the trade because uh, the general manager of the Chargers said, no trade without O.C. I said, then there's no trade. I'm not trading O.C. I'm not, I know I, I want a quarterback, but I can get another quarterback. I can't find pass rushers. They're too hard to find. And I was not trading O.C. O.C. And and uh, we had we didn't have Tuck yet either, so I wasn't giving or Kiwanuka, so I wasn't giving up that that pass rusher. No yeah, it way. didn't hurt it. It but, didn't hurt at Troy that on the other end of him it was uh, Demarcus Ware. No, that didn't either. No, I I agree with you. But he's you know, he's one of those special guys. Obviously. he's one of my my all time favorites. Well, Ernie, Giants fans have to thank you a lot for a lot of those guys. We got to dra- we got to thank you for you know half our guest list was guys that you drafted. Uh, so yeah. so thanks to you as well in, in contributing to the show. Thanks to helping the Giants get those Super Bowls. And uh, Ernie, of course, we appreciate your time on the podcast today. Well, it's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Paul's a dear friend, and and uh, it's great to get to know you, Lawrence. And even if it's on the phone, and and uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks, thanks, Ernie. He is a dog. That will say goodnight to episode 47, the Greg Jackson edition of Blue Rush, our New York Giants podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown and Sarah McCrory for producing the show. Catch up on all Blue Rush episodes by finding us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get pods. Please give us that five-star rating and write in a nice review on Apple. For Paul Schwartz, I'm Lawrence Tynes. See you all on Tuesday following Giants Bucks at MetLife. Enjoy the game and stay safe.